It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. Voters go to the polls across the country today. The most high profile of the races in this off-year election takes place in the Commonwealth of Virginia. As the election day, we hope to find out whether Democrat Terry McAuliffe or Republican Glenn Youngkin will become Virginia's next governor. Hope, because it could be very close. The face-off is seen as a clear bellwether ahead of the 2022 midterm elections when Democrats will attempt to defend their House and Senate majorities. The race may also have potential 2024 implications as both President Biden and former President Trump have weighed in and checked in on this contest. For this and more, we'll bring in our panel, former South Carolina congressman and host of the Trey Gowdy podcast, Trey Gowdy, former Democratic Tennessee congressman Harold Ford Jr. and political editor at the National Journal, Josh Crashour. Josh, uh, it seems like Republicans always perform better on election day for the most part. Um, And that's where their big numbers are. And it seems like looking at the numbers heading in that Glenn Youngkin needs 52 to 55% uh, to go his way today. That's right, Brett. Virginia is pretty new to this early voting stuff, but historically in last year, Democrats took advantage of the early voting predominantly and Republicans predominantly voted on Election Day. So the turnout, uh, especially in some of the more Republican leaning suburban areas on Election Day is going to be a very interesting bellwether, a sign of, of how well Youngkin is, is doing. But, you know, Brett, I can tell you that Virginia hasn't had a, a competitive governor's race in quite some time. This is a state that hasn't voted for a Republican in statewide office all the way back to 2009, Bob McDonald's governor's race. And you look at the crowds across the state, you look at Youngkin's spending time in Northern Virginia, in Fairfax. He was out in Loudoun County last night to a very sizable crowd and in an area that Biden won by 25 points. Uh, There's clearly an energy advantage, an enthusiasm advantage on the Youngkin campaign. They're riding a pretty strong wave of momentum in the home stretch. Uh, and, and, and they're hoping that can kind of overwhelm the math in, in a state like Virginia that that voted for Biden by 10 points and has had quite a long Democratic winning streak. Trey, you know, there's a lot of people looking at this and obviously Republicans are encouraged, but know that this is one of those states that it's like Lucy in the football with Charlie Brown. I mean, it, it sometimes gets pulled away at the at the very last minute. Um There will be a lot of focus on how this is run and what exactly happens, especially after the 2022 um, situation. Yeah, Brett, I mean, 
some people argue Virginia is a purple state. Um, I must I must be colorblind because both U.S. senators are Democrats. Uh, seven out of the eleven members of the House are Democrats. Uh, GOP governor I think has won once in the last twenty years, and a GOP presidential candidate has carried the state once in the last. 20 years. So the fact that we're talking about a competitive gubernatorial race in Virginia is already something of a victory for Republicans. If it is really close and they lose, or if it's really close and they win, what's important for Republicans is to figure out how they made up a 10-point deficit in 12 months. Is it because Terry McAuliffe is such an unattractive candidate? Because he doesn't inspire any more enthusiasm than Joe Biden, I don't think. So the real issue for me Wednesday morning is going to be why, not so much what, but why did it happen? And can Republicans learn anything from this heading into the midterms? Yeah, Harold, how that race was run by Youngkin, focusing on education uh, and other issues, seems to be, even if he comes up short, a bit of a blueprint heading into 2022. Right. I think without question. Um I think everything that's been said, particularly Trey's last point there about the lessons on Wednesday, I think they're going to be lessons for both parties Wednesday morning, uh, whomever wins or loses. Obviously, if Glenn Youngkin wins, um, you got to figure out how you run a Trump-like campaign, and he would have shown you how you embrace the best parts of Trump and shun or turn your back on the parts that are unsavory. If Terry wins, I think he says to the messages to moderates and middle-of-the-road Democrats, uh, our way, and I'm a middle-of-the-road Democrat, I might add, our way is the winning way. And we should understand that uh, electorates are, are, are fluid. And just because we won something two years ago, four years ago, or six years ago, people vote with, their, with how they want to live, where they want to live. You've seen the last three years, two of the last three years, Virginia has been ranked the number one state to do business in uh, by one of the rival business networks of Fox. Uh, based on taxes, business competitiveness, education, livability in the state. So I think, you know, some factors, some constants remain there in politics. But without question, this issue of education and how parents uh, are, to, are to be involved and how expected and how welcome their involvement is clearly has played a, a huge role in this race, uh, whether Glenn Youngkin wins or not. Uh, but I'm most impressed by Youngkin's campaign about how he's been able to, again, take the best of Trump and shun the best of Trump, I mean, shun the worst of Trump. Uh, and we'll see, uh, you know, like I've said, I don't count Terry McAuliffe out. He's the best retail politician in the Democratic Party. So we shall see here tonight what happens. Yeah, Josh, you know, Terry McAuliffe did nationalize the race. He did so by, you know, bringing up Donald Trump, the former president, a lot, really every campaign stop, brought in national figures, uh, former President Obama, President Biden, Kamala Harris, others. And Youngkin did not do that, in part maybe because, you know, the the tricky walk he had to do with the former president. Uh, But he he wisely said that I'm my own man and I'm campaigning in Virginia. It seemed to work. Yeah, it did seem like everything Terry McAuliffe said was, to borrow a phrase from Joe Biden, a noun, a verb, and Donald Trump. And, you know, that may work in a congressional race or a Senate race, but governor's races are, are typically more about the candidates and the issues and local issues uh, in the state of Virginia. And what Yunkin did was capitalize on an issue of great frustration to voters, not just 
Republicans and conservatives, but a broad coalition of, of, of moderate minded voters frustrated about slow pace of school openings, curricular changes, uh, getting rid of, uh, you know, gifted and talented advanced math programs throughout the state. And, and it's it sparked clearly a suburban and exurban backlash that that Youngkin is, is capitalizing on. And, you know, Brett, I was struck that in the final couple days of the campaign, Terry McAuliffe brought in Randy Weingarten, the head of the one of the two biggest teachers unions in the country, who has been sort of a the face of the uh, the parents frustration um, in, in Virginia to campaign campaign with him and speak on his behalf in the final couple of, of days. And it's a little confusing because, you know, the, the appeal of McAuliffe is that he was a moderate candidate running in the primary, that he had a moderate record when he was governor, uh, you know, for, for the first time. And he has been playing to the base, playing to that Trump card to such an extent that he's, I believe he's really alienated a whole lot of moderate middle of the road voters that voted for Joe Biden in the last election, but now are shifting and switching to, to Glenn Youngkin in the closing days of this race. I just thought it was bizarre, too. I thought it was kind of tone deaf to what this election seemed to be, according to the polls, about. And then, you know, you have the headwinds of Trey, uh, Joe Biden's uh, approval ratings and what's happening in the kind of chaos of Democratic governance on Capitol Hill. It really shouldn't translate, but it does in Virginia, especially. And then you had this strange kind of race um, input by McAuliffe towards the end uh, where you know, you had this Lincoln Project stunt, and there are a lot of people who said McAuliffe and his campaign were behind it, but uh, this, you know, these guys standing outside a bus with tiki torches. And then the closing argument yesterday was Terry McAuliffe saying, Virginia has too many white teachers, and that needs to change. It just seemed, I don't know, seemed tone deaf from somebody who just watches a lot of races. Yeah, and I, I might add the word desperate, and and desperate people do and say desperate things, and that's kind of looking from South Carolina the way I view this, that McAuliffe is taking high-risk political moves because he thinks it's the only way to navigate the chessboard. And look, Brett, I know less about geography than anyone else on this call. I'm going to guess that West Virginia is close to Virginia in terms of geography. I'm going to guess. That. <laughs> so why in the world Joe Manchin would be uh, an outlier, but Cory Bush and AOC uh, and Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Caucus I just I, I, I my guess is Democrats in Virginia probably are closer to Joe Manchin than they are the squad. As for race, I think it is reprehensible when either side uses something that has been as painful as race for this country, not political party, but this country. And, you know, when the media quits referring to the Lincoln Project as Republicans will be a happy, happy, blessed day for me. They're not Republicans and they hadn't been for a long time. <laughs> Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Harold, I don't want to go too far down this road, but I heard the argument being made that that this issue about schools and school boards and parents' concerns was a, quote, dog whistle uh, to white supremacists. I heard that from like legitimate people. And 
I, I don't see that. I don't, you know, and I cover it and I look at all sides. I just don't, don't see that. I see African-American parents and Hispanic parents and all kinds of parents concerned about what their kids are being taught. And it kind of crosses ideologies and races. And, and the only race injector in the last part of this race was the McAuliffe team and his allies. Look, I, I share, resemble the comments you just made there, the tone and substance as well as the tone and substance of, of, of Trey. And I'm sure Josh feels the same way, but Trey's comments there right there, right at the end. I will say, if, if you look, look, look at one of the ads, I think Glenn Youngkin ran, I think he ran an ad about the book Beloved, uh, Tony Morrison's uh, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning, a uh, National Book Award winning author who happens to be black. And I, I think that some people extrapolated from that that maybe <clears throat> maybe he was trying to inject race. But I, I, I think that the worst thing in politics is race. Unfortunately, it finds its way into politics too often. But I think when we think about this education issue, I think that the, the words that reverberate, resonate with me the most have really been the words. Uh, and I think the ones that are that, that really are most applicable, the words of Condi Rice, who said a few days ago, if not a week ago, that you know, we should find ways to uplift kids of all backgrounds. And at the same time, we shouldn't put down kids while we lift kids up. I mean, there are parts of our history that are, that, that are frankly unsavory, but the, the fact is we continue to, to live as this great melting pot and continue to thrive as this great melting pot with challenges and wrinkles along the way. And that, that, that didn't come out in the campaign. That hadn't come out in a, in a long time in a campaign. So I, I think a lot of parents are probably going to be happy when this race is over. Uh, and yeah. I hope whomever wins takes the lesson that parents want to be involved. Parents want their kids educated. Uh, and any effort to push parents away is not good for schools. And it's clearly not good for politics. Yeah. Josh, last thing. Um, what is happening on Capitol Hill? It seemed, you know, and not to bring race back up, but Corey Bush and others said that Joe Manchin was acting racist for standing in the way of this reconciliation bill, bill a bill that he does not know what looks like what it looks like and um you know this train was going down the track and they were supposed to vote today that's clearly not happening uh it seems like there's a lot of vague uh legislative language that's flying up there and somebody like mansion and probably other moderates are not going to go without actually reading it yeah, Brett. I mean, the reality is Joe Manchin and also Kirsten Cinema are probably closer to Mitch McConnell in their worldview, in, the, in their in their view of the, this issue, than Cory Bush and AOC. And, and that's the problem the Democratic Party is facing with all this uh, spending legislation. Uh, they can't square a circle. They, they can't afford to lose the squad members, the Cory Bushes, the AOCs, Ilhan Omar, and so on. But they also need to get Manchin and Cinema, and frankly, a whole lot of moderate Democrats in the House as well. I thought it was notable that the progressives seem to be making a concession that they'll uh, vote for the infrastructure bill uh, along with the, uh, the social spending bill in the House, which was something they didn't say they would do just a few days ago before Biden's trip to, to Europe. But that it's too little too late, politically speaking. I mean, Biden's taking a huge hit because his party looks dysfunctional and is being controlled by the left. And this could have been done a month ago. This could have been done more than a month ago. Um, and now only progressives are waking up to the political reality that what they've been doing, they've been acting as sort of a tea party of the left, is done a lot of damage to their party, maybe even in the Virginia governor's race. So, I mean, this is, uh, you know, Pramila Jayapal is sort of the Ted Cruz of, of, the, of, the, um, of the Democratic Party, and it's caused the, the, the party a lot of political damage. Yeah, last word, Trey. Does this land, does this plain land for Democrats? 
You know, I don't know. I thought it did until yesterday, but I mean, why hold a press conference like Joe Manchin did if you're, if you're going to go along and this Democrat tactic, and I'm not including my friend Harold Ford because he's too smart to do this, but to insult the people whose votes you need to pass something has just (laughs) never made a lot of sense to this little country lawyer from South Carolina. (laughs) Insulting the jury rarely works. (laughs) (laughs) That is very true. That is very true. All right, panel, thanks. Here's a bit of Election Day history. Originally, Election Day is varied by state, but on January 23rd, 1845, the Presidential Election Day Act was passed to set a single election day for the entire country. The act greatly increased the speed of presidential elections. The previous election in 1844 took place from November 1st through December 4th. The reason that election day was specified is the Tuesday after the first Monday was to prevent it from falling on November 1st. That day, of course, considered unfavorable because some Christians observe it as All Saints Day. With Sunday as a holy day, Monday as a travel day, Wednesday as a market day, Tuesdays were perceived as the best option. There you have it. That'll do it for us this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Trey and Harold and Josh, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.